welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I have the absolute pleasure speaking with Indipreet Sahrani, the Group General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer of Infosys. It's a fantastic discussion, as they always are. Indipreet takes us through her personal and professional journey, how she ended up at 2017 is when she started her current role as General Counsel. We talk about what the difference is between her role back then and her role in 2023, and you'll see the key theme coming out of that is how the role has expanded and the Office of the General Counsel more broadly now taking on initiatives like DE&I, ESG, CSR, data privacy. So that's a, a strong theme. We do a bit of a deeper dive into AI and the impact. And there's, of course, coming from a technology company, AI is a really important business imperative initiative, as well as from a legal perspective, that is the legal team. So we talked about that. And we also learn what keeps Interpret up at night. So in the usual fashion, I know you're going to enjoy the show. So sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Interpret, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I've been looking forward to this discussion for a while. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jim. Happy to be here and excited and looking forward to our chat. Fantastic. Now, your current position, of course, you're the General Counsel, Chief Compliance Officer, the Group General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer of Infosys. You've had that position for a few years, but you didn't always have the, that position. There was a life before. Take us through story, your journey, and then we'll, we'll move to the current day. I would describe myself as an accidental lawyer. I didn't start out wanting to be a lawyer, but I really do like what I do. I fell in love with my profession. I started off my journey working in my early days of my career in India. I was working in-house for a multinational India-based conglomerate and did that for a few years before I relocated to California. And once I got, got to California, sort of studied for the bar exam, got myself qualified, and then worked at a mid-sized law firm in California for several years, both in LA and in the Bay Area, and decided to cross the pond one more time and went back to Bangalore, well, went to Bangalore and stayed there for five years working as in-house counsel for another IT services company. And since then, I have relocated to Dallas, where I'm speaking to you from. And we've been here since January of 2017, in this role since July of 2017 at Infosys uh, as their group general counsel and chief compliance officer. Fantastic. So tell me about some of the crossroads in that journey and what influenced you to make one decision or other? And, and what kind of stands out when you look back now as kind of pivotal moments it, 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 during those crossroads and during the journey? One, I would say definitely having worked for a few years, relocating to California and sort of getting back to the drawing board, if you will, 
to study for the bar all over again, getting back into the student mode was a little challenging because I had not, I didn't have a degree from the U.S. So that was a big, big moment for me. Probably learned more law in that short duration than, than I had in years of law school. The other big one that I'll say is when I relocated to India, having worked in California for several years, that was a big bold move for me. I relocated my family. So there was some personal considerations that came into play. But the opportunity was great to work for a global company, to do some global work, focus, of course, on India and the U.S., but it was also an opportunity to do something different. So I would say that that was a, that was a big one for me. And, and we've talked on this podcast, Interpret, quite a bit about, about relocating families for opportunities, the struggles that sometimes give rise to, but the personal growth and the the doors that otherwise might never have opened. When you think about the, if you take it back yourself back to when you were making those decisions, and now you reflect with the benefit of the experience, what's the kind of what are the insights and what are the, the pearls of wisdom that you would give to others out there in their career, particularly in general counsel, about moving, about moving family, the disruption that 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 comes with that? What's the advice that you would give? I think that, you know, making big, bold moves are not free of risk, right? It's just like what we do in our professional lives every day. And each person has to evaluate what's going to work for them, what's the risk to the family, working spouses, children, all of that. So that's one. And I would say that if you're going to take a big, big move or take a big leap like that in your career, it doesn't always have to involve a transatlantic flight. It could be something else, right? But what you're doing essentially is you are saying, I'm going to explore a new world. It's not free of risk. And you just have to reflect and see if that's what you want to do. And, you know, find in yourself the confidence to sort of move forward with that decision once you've taken it. So I would encourage people to step out of their comfort zone because, you know, and that's what allows you to make some of these decisions, if you will. Our listeners have heard me say time and time again in Dupreet that comfort is the enemy of growth and the willingness to step out of the comfort zone and and expose yourself to new challenges. With that comes absolutely risk, but typically without risk, there is not a lot of opportunity <laughs> greenfield opportunity opportunity that you didn't think you were potentially capable of doing because when we're all in the early in our, our professional journeys and careers we don't know much at all we just haven't had the experience we don't actually know what we're capable of so i'm certainly a, a big advocate of um, getting yourself in uncomfortable positions in order to seize opportunities to grow or weighted as sensibly as possible, given a person's you know individual individual circumstances. But I do think that's an important attribute for personal growth and for success in the long term. I completely agree. And you know, when you are making those decisions early on, you will have moments of self doubt and reflection. And I can say this: that even the most confident person that you see sitting across the table from you are going through the exact same emotions. Right? They just do a better job of dealing with it or not not it being so apparent. And probably they're thinking of you and saying the same thing, right? That here is someone who's taken this big decision. So 
self-doubt, I guess, is a part of our professional growth and journey. And I think you challenge yourself, you have conversations with yourself, which help you continue down that path. Yeah, no, much agreed. Okay, so let's go to your current role, but I want to compare a couple of things. I want to compare 2017 and the first, those earlier years in, in your current role. And I want to compare that to what it's like now and how the role for you has changed. I think just overall, I took my first general counsel job in 2011. And even when I started at Infosys in 2017, the job has changed quite significantly, right? And the way I see that change happening is over a period of time, general counsel, in not just general counsel, but even legal professionals who work in-house, they have evolved from being sort of the tactical to the strategic, right? People in early days, you know, way back when legal departments started to grow and get established in some companies, the job was, here's the transaction. Can you translate this into legalese? Can you make sure that we've got everything that we need to being asked to come often at the end of a transaction? I think what has happened now is strategic in-house legal professionals, general counsels have a seat very early on at the table able to help shape transactions, you know, have a voice in defining where companies are going, understanding what the risks are. So that's one big change. The other big shift that's happened is we see general counsel take on responsibilities that are often outside the legal function, the core legal function, right? The adjacent functions. It could be, you know, in my role, for example, I am very involved with our DE&I initiatives. I sit on our ESG council, CSR committee, the, the corporate social responsibility work that Infosys does, data privacy, things like that. And you've seen other general counsel who oversee marketing, internal audit. So that's the second expansion of the role that's happened. One is being in the role early on, shaping the conversations, making strategic contributions. And second is like with that, has also come the spread that's expanded for, for our counterparts. And, and let's talk a little bit about that expanded expanded scope. How well equipped, how well equipped do we think, given typical the tip, let's say the typical training of a general counsel where they might have gone the experience that they might have had, how well equipped do you think the general counsel community more broadly is to take on those additional responsibilities? I think very highly qualified. You know, as lawyers, we are trained to do analysis, apply the analysis to the situation and problem solve, right? That's what we are really doing at a, at a broad level. And the adjacent roles, general counsel are able to do well if they know their company well. Like, you know, you, we hear often like, get to know your customers, get to know your business. And if you, you know the law, or you have the ability to be able to understand what the law is. But if you get to know your customer and you take that analytical skill, I think that combination is really great. And also what happens is that early on in your journey as your general counsel, you often, or as an in-house professional, you often get opportunities to sit and work with cross-functional teams. So you watch the business guys, you watch the marketing guys, you watch the finance guys. 
bring their issues on and you are learning in that process. You don't often get that opportunity at law firms, right? And that also is on-the-job training, if you will, to take on these additional responsibilities. And when you think about interpret, if the top three challenges today, to the extent that you're willing to share what you regard your challenges or perhaps more broadly, what would you pick as the top challenges of today and perhaps contrast that what with what might have been, let's say, six or seven years ago? I think today, if I was to pick the one top challenge, it is being prepared for the unexpected, right? We have seen in the last three or four years how much general counsel and corporations have had to deal with the myriad of changes that have come to us, right? Nobody had thought of, you know, the pandemic, for example, that put companies and their legal departments right in the middle of for some cases, an opportunity for some businesses, survival for others. For the generative AI, we've had like three, four generations of AI that's been around. And something something turned in November of last year when generative AI came out and we had chat GPD. And as general counsel, are you and your team prepared to help guide the business through that unanticipated change, right? You, There is no rule book that's written on a lot of issues that we are facing today with generative AI, for example. But how are you going to help navigate your business? So, so I would say that's one. Two, I think the ability to be able to handle a crisis that also comes at you unplanned, fast and furious, may not be in your, exactly in your wheelhouse, meaning that, you know, if you're a transactional lawyer and let's say the crisis in the form of a litigation, or you have an employee issue and you're not an employment lawyer, how are you going to equip yourself and pivot yourself to become that voice of reason and guidance for the company and help them navigate through that crisis? So those, I think, are the challenges that we face today. The issues that we didn't have a few years back, you know, that were not on the table, ESG has become a big topic for us. CSR has become a big topic for us. Data privacy as an issue has moved up the agenda for companies. All of these were much further down the list. Yeah. So let's double click into one of my favorite topics right now, generative AI. And tell me, how do you think about it at two levels, more broadly across the business, but really I'd love to have a bit of a deep dive in relation to legal and as the group general counsel of a technology company like Infosys, how do you think about the use of the impact of or how the team should be thinking about AI in the legal profession? I think first is to recognize that the generative AI is going to become part of our lives, if not today, maybe tomorrow, maybe the day, day after, right? So there is a lot of, there is a lot of resistance to whether we as humanity should embrace it, right? The big broad question but I think it's inevitable. So if it's inevitable, then you might as well use it to its advantage and put it to use in a manner that can help your business in two ways. You know, one is internal use for productivity, for insights, for analysis, either within the legal team or any other function inside a corporation. And secondly, for us, as a technology company, what is it that we can offer our customers through this generative AI process? Are we able to bring them 
enhanced productivity? Can we do the same task for, you know, X times less resources? Can we give them insights that they didn't have? Can we be predictive with them, right? And then, of course, there is the regulatory aspect, which, again, you know, we're seeing different aspects of it come out of different countries. But the way I think the legal issues are going to play out is, will we have a guidance framework? Will Europe and America and the rest of the world have, have similar frameworks or will companies have to adopt to different laws? The U.S. has the additional challenge of state laws that are coming out, right? So how is that going to play out? Two, how do you ensure that when you're using this tool, which can be you know, a fantastic productivity tool. How are you weeding out of it issues of misinformation, making sure what you're doing is verified, there's authenticity in what you're offering. That, and I think it's a little easier to do it when you have controlled environments. Third is, is how, do you, how do you protect or regulate the ownership of what the AI generates? right? That's a highly litigated issue right now, in, in particularly in the U.S. And then, you know, do you have certain areas where you say that this is something that, you know, we will not step into, not companies, but governments saying that this is not something we should be used for security or for anything that puts in danger the health of individuals, right? Like, what's the risk-based appetite? And in many ways, you go back to the Analysis that as lawyers that you do the risk and the opportunity, how do you weigh the two? And if there is a risk that you're taking, how are you going to mitigate that risk? So that's the framework that I would bring to the AI regulation and the adoption of AI. I mean, at Infosys, we are very excited. We see this as an opportunity. We've got an offering that we already have called Infosys Topaz that we are beginning to both consume internally and also offer it to our clients. Yeah, no, it's some of the business application incredibly exciting. Think back to, or we go back to the legal function itself. In a number of the discussions that I've had with general counsels, the thinking for the application of AI has more often than not been in relation to the internal workflows of the in-house team. So if I can give you an example, I often separate what an in-house team does in a kind of too big buckets. The, the first is the provision of legal and related advice internally to the business. And the second is it, it buys legal advice externally and it brings it in. Okay. So, and often the discussions I hear about the use cases of AI, it's usually in the first bucket. It's how can we help with our own workflows, our own con- you know, for example, our, our own contracts, but it's not often in relation to the second bucket, the way we by legal services, the way we engage with our law firms and how AI might impact on that part of the function, all those two functions, and the ecosystem, the legal ecosystem we're all in more broadly. I wonder if you've thought about it in in those kind of buckets and the impact, particularly I'm interested if you've thought about, I wonder how, how my relationship or the Infosys relationships with the outside council teams, the law firms, how... AI might impact on those relationships. Have you given that any thought? Have there been any early insights for you? I think the first one is the low-hanging fruit, right? Like bringing the AI, doing analytics, you know, extracting 
if you have a database of information as to how you could use it. The second one I think is without site council, the way I would think about it is, you know, we is over a period of time as a in-house team, we've collected information, opinions, analysis that we've done. And it gets lost. It gets lost in individual, you know, with the individual attorneys or inboxes. And so if we had, you know, the company's been around for 40 years, but even if we had all of that in one place for the last 20 years, it would give such a head start if we were able to extract that information in a meaningful way. And this is like, even at a more basic level, we are not even asking the AI to sort of, you know, do anything beyond extracting what we have. And that would give a head start as to how we manage relationship with external counsel. I think the second thing which will change over time with external counsel is as the legal field adopts this, and I think it lends itself well, the tool of AI to, to the legal field is you expect more productivity from your external counsel, right? Like, are you going to go ahead and put, you know, X number of hours of your younger first, second, third year associates to do research, or are you going to go in and use this tool that can extract all of this information and make it a lot easier for you to offer the same service to your customers? So we will, over a period of time, demand productivity gains, just like what we are offering to our customers. I think we may be a, a little bit further away in that process, but it is going to happen. And the reason I said it lends itself well is because legal databases exist today, right? Versus when you think of chat GPT and you put something in, nobody has checked what's on the World Wide Web. People say what they want to do and you don't often get the truth. You get hallucinations. But if you're going to go into a database that is authenticated, that is curated, then you should be able to get the kind of things that, that we're talking about, the benefits of productivity. I think you're absolutely right. It's the productivity. I talk often about the time itself no longer being a currency of value just because it takes 10 hours to, to create something. That doesn't mean that's 10 hours time, $1,000 an hour. And it really depends upon, well, what did you actually do? And was there a more efficient way? Could you have got to the first draft in 10 minutes? And so I think the whole notion of what value is in a world of AI and how you measure value. I heard someone say, I think it was just, I was watching YouTube, I talked about, we should all assume that the that the cost of distributing knowledge will fall to zero. Mm-hmm. Just like the cost of distributing lots of things in technology with, you know, the music and so forth, ultimately the cost of distributing knowledge, and that's essentially, if you think about generative AI, with all its faults and so forth, but it, just, it has the capacity to distribute knowledge. And so in my view, that's where we will, that's where legal and other basically knowledge-based services will go, then the question will be, okay, so knowledge is almost like a free commodity. Then it's a question of, well, how are we actually going to, what are we going to define as value right now, steered much closer towards outcomes rather than the creation of, let's say, the knowledge in the first place? I'd be interested in your views on whether, does that make, does that resonate with you? Does it sound a little bit far-fetched? 
Well, I think you're right that ultimately, if we have tools that can make solutions easier through the analysis of you know what exists in databases, we will get there. The question, therefore, is how far are we from it? And you know, Jim, one of the ways I like to think about it is as we look forward, perhaps there are lessons that we can get from looking back as well, right? The way e-discovery changed things for lawyers versus sitting in a room of boxes, you know, you now do it on a platform that does some of the heavy lifting for you. We've seen humanity take these big leaps in in many, many fields, right? And so you're right, you know, if information and databases that are curated become accessible, then you don't need to apply that that model of the hourly legal fees. Now, the hourly legal fee model has been bashed around quite a bit. People have worked with alternate fee models. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And I think the question for the next generation of lawyers is that how are they going to add value, not doing stuff that you know, now it's much easier, right? So how do you keep reskilling and upskilling yourself? And I'd be interested in your view on this. So I heard this at a breakfast a few weeks ago and it, and I I hadn't thought about it before, but it, certainly up until now, it's been accepted wisdom and certainly wisdom that I have accepted that the best possible training for young lawyers is in a well-established major firm, big law, early years doing really the hard yards and of course you know a lot of that is more of the mundane but you get to learn okay somebody one of the one of the GCs I was at a breakfast hosting a breakfast and and she said well actually what I've decided to do is I'm recruiting straight out of law school really smart tech driven or tech curious young lawyers straight out of law school and the things that they are doing now with some of the tools they would never are astounding and I so I'm now questioning whether or not the the training that you typically might receive at a law firm is actually the best training for our young lawyers so anyway as a bold statement I hadn't thought about it before, but it did make me think. It made it made me think. I wonder whether or not the traditional training training ground for our lawyers and future GCs is still, you know, the well established law firm. Any any thoughts around that? It's it's interesting. You know, when you look at different jurisdictions, you get different answers, right? The U.S. has had a particular path of law firm. GC, and then you get to in-house and then you get to GC or even you had partners move to GC roles. India, where I have a significant part of like more, little more than half of my team, has actually hired students or law, fresh or new law graduates and they've come to work for companies, including for us. We have some attorneys who've done well for themselves and joined us straight out of law school. Now, I think in addition to the tech piece, what what they learn at a in an in-house department and what they don't get to learn at a law firm is you know what i talked about earlier the honing of skills that you see in a true business environment right in some ways when when we have people that we hire from law firms i often say to them you know the memo writing that you did at a law firm you almost get you almost you almost have to forget that and start learning the business communication, right? 
your business partner does not care about your case law analysis. They care about what is the outcome? Is it yes or no? And if it's a yes, what's the risk? And if there's a risk, how are you going to help me mitigate it? Right? So I think, I still think that a mix of both kinds of lawyers is probably the best for in-house teams so that everybody's coming in with a different background and experience. But if you learn or your your early years in a large team, which offers you also the other advantage of, you know, company like Infosys doing international work, which is somewhat unique, you learn in ways that you wouldn't have learned at a law firm. But if you, you know, go to a law firm, you'll, and maybe law firms will also evolve and they'll have to start teaching their lawyers how to handle tools and technology. Uh, my personal view is this inevitable and it's a question of long-term survival because I don't think, I think if you can't train the lawyers of the future and arm them with the tools they need to succeed, then they will, they will go elsewhere. They will find the organisations and natural market forces will play out. So I think it's a huge challenge Opportunity, as all challenges are, but a huge challenge for law firms to reimagine essentially what is the training, what is the first five years of the training for a lawyer, what should it be look what should it look like? And given what we've seen only in the last couple of years. Completely agree. I think law firms, in-house teams, everybody's gonna to have to reevaluate. And we are going to have to learn how to use this tool. It's a very powerful tool, right? It's coming. And it, you're right, it's only a question of time as to how we get to get to a point where if the lawyers don't know how to do this, it's like, you know, back in the day, lawyers didn't type. They had stenographers. We had to learn. I, I remember it. <laughs> I remember it well. I was an absolute master on the dictaphone. I could tell you, I, I could do page after page, after, you know, well-structured, well-thought-out, which is a skill in itself. But anyway, so that's let's go way back now. Okay, let's round out so, with some of my favourite questions, interpret if that's okay. What advice would you give to your twenty-five-year-old self? I think if I had to go back, and I would say that don't be afraid of numbers. It's going to be a part of your life, so learn to embrace them and make them your friends. Lawyers are very often sort of you say, "I went to law school because I didn't want to learn about number crunching." It's an in, inevitable, so so embrace that. Two, I would say, you know, self-doubt is part of growth and it's okay to question yourself whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And finally, I think I would say, and maybe this is even the first thing I would say is trust your intuition, right? Intuition is something that uh, we think of it as like, is it's a feeling, but actually, if you think about it, it's. You're reacting based on whatever you unconsciously imbibe through your experience, and that's how you're reacting. So I wish I'd known all of that when I was 25. <laughs> yeah. You probably would have spent a lot less time worrying. I always say, I mean, I think about the time spent worrying, which is just time not well spent <laughs> at all. It's inevitable, I think, to a degree. But I think also the ability to look out in the distant ask yourself in 10 years, 15, 20, will the circumstances you're facing right now, will they actually matter? Will they really make an impact? If you're actually, if you get good at that, you'll find, yeah, your level of resilience 
strengthens and you just get a better perspective. That's so that's certainly something I always encourage. Um, you know, people I work with speak to, you know, children and so forth. Just try to try to look out a few years, five, ten years, ask yourself, do you think your ten uh, year future self would really care that much about what just happened? Very true. One final question for you. Is there anything that keeps you up in Depreet at night now? The biggest thing I think I worry about today, just from a functional responsibility overall, is the fear of cybersecurity, right? You know, it's a game that we play in the defensive. People who do these kind of nefarious activities are getting better and better at what they do which means you've got to be constantly building to protect yourself and you don't stop at that game, right? Like every day is a new new challenge. Every day is, you know. So that that's what I would say is like top of risk, at least as we speak today. Yeah, I'm not sure that one's going away very quickly either. If you think about what could really go wrong, that's certainly, that's certainly the top of the list. You know, that's the area that I think we should all remain paranoid about. Yeah. It's in that paranoia where you find you can find the best solutions uh, for us. Uh, I agree. And being just super conscious because a lot of the mishaps there happen through human error. It's basic human error. I mean, the, that's where the weak link is at basing whether it's a whether it's password security, whether it's a laptop that's been left unattended, whether it's a phishing scam. So that's yeah, that's certainly where the risk is. Well. Uh, I'll, I'll wrap up now. Interpret, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. I know you're incredibly busy. So I um, feel very, very uh, blessed and grateful that you joined me on the show. It's been a fantastic discussion. And I'm sure the global audience that is the innovative legal leadership audience, it's global, I'm not sure. Uh, I think I'm playing it up a little, but I thought they're, they're going to absolutely enjoy um, the session that we've had. Some fantastic learnings there. So thank you very much. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.